RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Track Files, Episode 9, Letter from Gene Roddenberry to Gary Nardino, April 17th, 1981. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Hey, Deep Divers, welcome back. And today we've got a really, really obscure look at a pivotal time in Trek history on several fronts. I am sharing with you, which you can also see at facebook.com slash the Trek Files for yourself, I'm sharing a personal and confidential letter, the way we used to do, <laughs> typed on paper, from Gene to Gary Nardino, who was then the president of Paramount Television. This is April 17th, 1981. Several things are going on here. Harv Bennett and his, his employees uh, have been tasked to write the second movie. Gene has been demoted in all reality to executive consultant after the performance of the motion picture, not so much as its box office, but in the whole way it was executed, a lot of which was not Gene's fault, but that's the way the studio cookie crumbles. And Gene is dealing with that shift in tone, and at the same time, dealing with the actual scripts that are being generated, the story that's being generated for the second Star Trek feature, which by then was going to include Spock's death. And <laughs> this document is Gene, well, you'll see, he's, he's walking, a, he's walking a, a narrow path here, uh, caught between personal history and, and the franchise that he created. And this one section in particular um, really stands out to illuminate, I think, where Gene's heart still resides. So that you won't think I'm being unfair or unnecessarily harsh, I'll give you an example from the script. CC-96, where Spock has been killed, and they're holding a space burial ceremony at the ship's torpedo tube from which they will send his body out into space. The body is covered with the Federation flag, and James Kirk stands over the Vulcan reciting the words of an old Protestant Christian burial ceremony, after which our engineer Scotty, clad in kilts, plays the bagpipes. Incredible! This is the scene that I was promised would be so touching and lovely that it would bring tears to the eyes of our fans. Tears will probably flow at that, but for the wrong reason. <laughs> oh, this entire letter is amazing. That paragraph to me is amazing. And here to share in my amazement <laughs> is our co-host again, John Champion, you know from Mission Log Pod. And I am amazed. <laughs> I am amazed. There's so much to this letter. Uh, this letter, oh. and, and, and incredible with three exclamation points, may I Yes, add. yes. Yeah. Uh, but, and there, but there is so much going on here. That's, the, that's, that's amazing about this. And Gene's actually, actually navigating it really well. So put it into context for us. I mean, this is April 1981. This is well before production has started, actual production has started on The Wrath of Khan. Uh, This is before Nicholas Meyer has come on board. Uh, So he's talking about a script draft that's by Harv and by uh, Jack Sowards. Right. uh, Or Sowards, depending on how you pronounce it. Um, And Gene, where is he now in the Star Trek world post 
motion picture. Well, see, from working backwards, we are all familiar, and only just now about Nicholas Meyer's role in The Wrath of Khan, directing what we didn't know at the time, but has since come out over the years as as the uh, <laughs> statute of limitations with <laughs> with Writers Guild uh, credits has gone down, is that they were actually f- wound up with five versions of a story that weren't all workable that Nick Meyer put together uh, without credit just to get a movie done because the clock was ticking. Harv had been called in early on, very famously, to take over producing this this movie, which was going to be scaled back and done by the TV production department at Paramount, but with an expanded budget. So a glorified TV movie where they're spending a lot of, of, a lot of coin on a TV scale. But they're trying to avoid the crazy overruns and delays. Again, not all of which were Gene's fault. Uh, you know, <clears throat> cough, Robert April, cough. <laughs> or the fact that it had been preceded by the, uh, the, the idea for the TV series, Phase 2, all of whose development costs were rolled into the costs of right, the movie right. and paid for. Uh, again, not Gene's fault. But Gene was in the situation here of suddenly, for the first time in history, not being the great bird of the galaxy when it came to all things Star Trek. He was an executive consultant, and he was lucky in some ways to be to be there. So he's checking his own ego, his own future power structure, his own future with the studio, and uh, and making sure that he found a way to work with Har Bennett where he didn't look like sour grapes, but he, he couldn't help but have some sour grapes. But also at the core, of the core, the kernel of everything, his baby, Star Trek, and his baby, his characters that he had nursed and birthed and fought all those network battles and seen the amazing rebirth of the 70s and fandom and all of that. And But whither now, Gene? <laughs> whither now, Star Trek? And dealing with Harv Bennett. And this is at a point where Harv wrote a draft and then sat down for the first of those five that, that Nick would ev- eventually do surgery with. Um, and, and over the years, we've had a lot come out about those drafts. This actually gets us a long way toward a lot of the story elements of the f- eventual movie, as, as Gene goes into detail there in that section, the, the familiar Spock funeral scene. Yeah, I, I'm surprised that it's as close in this description to what we see on film. Now, the, the, he does say here that uh, Kirk is reciting the words of an old Protestant Christian burial ceremony, which is not what we see mm-hmm. in the movie, but we certainly ha- have set the same stage, and we have Scotty there in the kilt and playing the bagpipes. The thing that is hilarious and amazing to me about this paragraph that, that we're focusing on is that it just sort of goes to show you Look, I, this is not to besmirch Gene's brilliance and, and his creativity, but it just goes to show you that there is not one person, one single person, who always has the best ideas when it comes to Star Trek. Mm-hmm. What he's describing here is the most, well, let's say the second most dramatic emotional moment of the most popular and well-regarded <laughs> Star Trek movie ever made. Right. Okay. And saying this is terrible and the fans are going to hate it and they're going to be crying for all the wrong reasons. Um, Filmmaking is a collaborative process. It is a series of decisions and hoping that you made the right decisions. Harv Bennett and Jack Sowards sounds like they made the right decision in setting the stage for that scene to play out. And Gene didn't, I guess, couldn't see the forest or the trees in this case. 
you know. As much as we want to point to Gene Roddenberry and say, well, if you need an answer about Star Trek, you just need to look to what Gene Roddenberry said. He's got it dead wrong here. It is. And yeah. I don't think that's the one that he – Gene. The, the entire letter, Gene is walking, again, a narrow path and trying to seem diplomatic and tactful. And I'm sure mm-hmm. Gary Nardino knew exactly where Gene was coming from. Again, this, this letter is marked personal and confidential. Gene takes pains at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end yeah. <laughs> to say, <laughs> right. this is between you and me. Yeah. I know Harv Bennett is a – Harv has done um, Six Million Dollar Man, yeah. Bionic Woman. Uh, he has uh, – you know, he's, he's started – he's launched the uh, miniseries movement on TV. Mm-hmm. Harv's got a, a good reputation behind him, and he's, and he's done some other projects. Um, and Ralph Swords as well. He can't knock them on their writing – He's he knows the world knows what he's feeling and going through, but at the same yeah. time he wants to make these comments about his baby, and he talks about a whole. I don't want to embarrass you uh, with a whole long litany of what I have a problem with here. I don't want to knock Harv. He's I'm beginning to like. He says I'm beginning to like him very much. Right. I know he wants to do a good movie. I know I want them to do a good movie. Right. But and then his leading example is this. Now I have to tell you, John. I. When I watched it the first time in space, I remember thinking, not that Kirk gives a Protestant Christian <laughs> eulogy, he right, doesn't, right. but that Scotty's bagpipes are playing Amazing Grace. Yeah. And I remember cringing for a moment, at the, not that I don't enjoy Amazing Grace, but I was mm. thinking, really, Amazing Grace for a Vulcan, for Spock? No, but but, that... but, but, we, but we know why at that scene moment, works, because I, it's an emotional moment for Scotty. I didn't say yeah. I've cringed for yeah. 30 years. Yeah, yeah. I just remember in the moment going, like a fan would do. And, of course, without having the benefit of what would follow for the next few years. Mm -hmm. So there's a a big part of me that understands. And, again, this is in reaction to a very nebulous early script um, that would have several other pieces combined with it. He's pulled that scene out at the time. And talking about the, the mix of creatives... In that great soup of scripts that that Nick Meyer cooked (laughs) into one final casserole, Nick Meyer didn't see any need to pull it out. Now, Nick Meyer famously came to to the Rathacon not knowing Star Trek. So did Harv Bennett, although Mm -hmm. Harv very famously sat down and screened every every episode, all seven Mm -hmm. episodes, and came up with using Khan as – as this sequel villain, that it yeah. was the most the, the the aspect of an original series episode that was screaming the most for a revisit. Yeah. So it's not like they he was totally new to it, but all these fresh these fresh eyes, these fresh faces, um, fresh takes, didn't see a problem with that. Well, there's and, something really to be said here about not being too close to the project. Mm-hmm. There's nobody closer to Star Trek than Gene Roddenberry at this point or any other point. And at some point, you kind of have to say, oh, wow, you know what? It really does need some fresh eyes. It really does need another perspective here. And Gene later in this letter is saying, like, look, I, I just don't think Harv Bennett has the experience or the right approach or the right perspective to actually make this work. To just do, hands down. To do science fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just hands down. He shouldn't be there. <laughs> Jesus, know? I hate to write this. <laughs> right? <laughs> he does. So, yeah, he, he's trying so hard to be diplomatic to say, oh, I, I don't want to say this. I don't want to step on toes. I don't want to make an enemy out of anybody. But listen to me because I know what I'm talking about and these other people don't. Well, the proof is in the pudding. Mm-hmm. They made Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, essentially without Gene Roddenberry. 
And I mean, he, he was there in that that executive consultant role. But how many letters like this could he fire off that they're just going to ignore because they look at the script and they go, right. "Wow, this is poignant. This is dramatic. This is what sells the moment and the character." And his, you know, his it's it's one of those situations where he has a contract that he is the executive consultant. He's getting a financial stake of the profits of the movie mm-hmm. so he has an interest in seeing it do well he doesn't want to shoot it down mm-hmm. and he and he says that he can stand on the leg of saying i very much want a new star trek movie to succeed but it won't with this script or if guided further by the kind of thinking behind this script <laughs> and it, you know and then at the same time this script did not stand the test as as in we're we're looking at little pieces here and we're, we, are, we don't we have are. the yeah. we don't have the whole script looking at it and obviously yeah. it went through three or four more versions yeah the different writers everybody having a hand on it and then Nick coming in and 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 making <laughs> making a, a a pretty mush out of the mush <laughs> that was sitting there but on the personal side of things uh, Gene closes by saying very clearly it must be certainly clear to you that I cannot and will not say these kinds of things to Harve. It's not my job to do so. I will be honest and tell him that the story and script doesn't work for me. And if he wants, I will give him examples. But it's up for you to take it from there, Gary. So so Gene is very much aware of the politics, the situation, the turf, the landscape of the moment. Yeah. And he doesn't want to make himself look petty. He wants to be open to doing future deals with Paramount, obviously. So he's really in a rock and a hard place situation here. And I think the rest of the world must understand that. Um, what's what's doubly interesting about this, as Har Bennett would point out later on, is that adding to this whole, uh, you know, the the uh, the change in landscape of Gene to Harv now being the showrunner and Harv mm-hmm. being the top dog with Star Trek movies, perce- assuming that this would lead to f- further movies, which was not a given at the moment, was that Gene was actually in the position of being fired by Harv. Right. 1966, the same time that Desilu is selling Mission Impossible and Star Trek to CBS and NBC, they'd actually sold a half-hour a half-hour Western pilot called The Long Hunt of April Savage huh. that he and uh, Herb Solo were, were producing writing, starring Robert Lansing that Gene loved. Mm-hmm. Sure. ABC apparently did not like Robert Lansing. They were out on location out in the wilds. This was going to be Desilu's Western, a half-hour Western. And after a few days of dailies getting back to New York and ABC, they did increasingly did not like Robert Lansing in the role. They did not like it. And Gene quit answering their phone calls. He would not answer the telegrams. <laughs> he and Herb Solar were just on a united front. We'll shoot the pilot and, and whatever. They had, they had bought the pilot with a fairly firm order to go in the fall. It finally came down to the ABC execs getting so pissed at the situation mm-hmm. that they pulled a poor junior executive – by the name of Hart Bennett, mm. a young suit to fly out to the where they were on location in California and walk up and shut down the production. Ouch. So that was Gene Roddenberry's first introduction yeah. to Hart Bennett, yeah. which was a two-way street. And the moment that Hart Bennett, Charles Bloodhorn, hired him to do the next Star Trek movie, Harv was no dummy. He was very much aware of that that uh, dynamic as well. Yeah. Well, there we so have these it, guys. Are both gen- these are both... These are both you know, consummate professionals and storytellers who are walking this yeah. <laughs> fine path. Well, th- there you have the backstory and the backstory to the backstory. Right. <laughs> so check out the full letter. It is fascinating. It is such a great read at facebook.com slash the Trek Files. Thanks for joining us today. 
And deep divers, don't despair. We're not disparaging on Gene too much here because history will show that Gene will later on have a very salient point to make in the production, in the final edit of The Wrath of Khan. We'll get to that down the line. But for now, thanks for joining us today on this mission. Just know that The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry, and additional production by Ken Ray. All documents are available at facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. For more great podcasts, check out podcast.roddenberry.com. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes with me, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47 at larrynemichek.com. Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network.